Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and believe it by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. Send me an email. I'm SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. You can check the show out on Spotify. Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I'm so, so thankful for all your support. Um, You guys can also make donations via PayPal to Saturdays with Joy Keys. And thank you for the ones, people who have already donated. I really appreciate it. You know, helps the show go, advertisements and all types of things. So giveaways, all those things, you know, need a little moolah, as they say. (laughs) But thank you, thank you, and thank you. Well, today I'm speaking with a filmmaker, actually a a professor. Uh, He has a lot of hats he wears, but he did a film. It's called Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II. Uh, But he is a career educator, a documentary filmmaker, and a World War II historian dedicated to helping relocate African-Americans from the margins to the main pages of American and global history. He is the founder and the president of the Basil and Becky Educational Foundation, a recipient of the Congressional Black Caucus Veterans Brain Trust Award of 2019. Good morning, Gregory S. Cook. Good morning, Joy, and uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's a real honor and a pleasure, and I, I love having the opportunity to spread the word about these fabulous women, these fabulous African-American women who, um, as the title of my documentary says, heretofore have been largely invisible. So thank you so much for helping illuminate their significant contributions to America and to the black community. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching the film and learning more about of course i knew that there were black women in the war i didn't know all the details and then i even went further and tried to just do my own research you know learning about some troops that went overseas it's an amazing amazing story as we talked earlier that is not being seen it's their invisible warriors similar to you know the black women who were working uh, with nasa and so on now this is not Mm -hmm. your first film you did another film called Chocolate Soldiers of the USA, from the USA. What was that one about, and how is that different from this one? Well, Chocolate Soldiers from the USA was done uh, and, uh, more than 10 years ago. It's never been released to the public. I think it will be coming within the next year or two. There have been some legal issues, I'll say, that you know, but it won a couple of awards. It was also the first film ever recognized by the Congressional Black Caucus uh, Veterans Brain Trust Award, but Chocolate Soldiers from the USA uh, was about the 140,000 African-American men and women 
who uh, went to Great Britain mostly prior to D-Day. And so uh, the significance of the film is uh, that you had uh, black people for the first time uh, being treated as Americans, being treated as equals, and being treated as human beings by white Brits. And it was something that was totally unexpected, uh, but they formed this bond, uh, this unexpected bond. And so uh, the documentary largely focuses on that. It also discusses uh, how the U.S. Army imported Jim Crow to Great Britain. And so, you know, there were a lot of racial fireworks in Great Britain during the war, um, meaning, you know, there were in, in several cities, um, you know, like places like Bamber Bridge and Bristol, there were outright uh, gunfights between black and white American soldiers where people were killed. Uh, and the mm. last thing I'd like to say about chocolate soldiers, what people need to understand is that the U.S. Army hung 13 uh, African-American and Latino um, soldiers in Great Britain uh, for the offenses of rape and or murder. And a lot of the rape cases were spurious. Um, and what's interesting about that, no white soldiers uh, were, ever, were ever hung or executed for, for rape, but that's certainly what they did to the black and uh, Latino and when soldiers. you say rape, were they raping white women or black women? Or, or yeah, they were. They, or well, they were raping. They were raping British women. Um, okay, um, supposedly. Or or accused or accused of raping British women. One of the most mm-hmm. notorious cases involved Leroy, a guy named Leroy Henry. We we're pressed for time here, but I'll I'll just truncate it. He was charged with rape. He was he was uh, he was put on trial. Uh, found guilty and sentenced to death. All of this took place in about three hours. Um, the British people in and around Bristol and Coombe Down, England, saw an injustice here. They got a petition together. In about three weeks, they got uh, about 34,000 signatures on a petition that said there's a problem here with this justice. Uh, they, sent a, they sent the petition to General Eisenhower, who received the petition petition on June 7th, 1944, one day after D-Day. So his head was, was still involved in the invasion. And he wrote, a one, he wrote one sentence in response to the petition. And with that one sentence, he overturned Leroy Henry's conviction. And Leroy mm-hmm. Henry was sent back to his unit and served the rest of the war uh, and survived the war. Wow. So there's so many stories out there that have not been told that we are not aware of, and that's why you're doing what you're doing. But let's talk about you and how you got interested, first of all, in history. What, where did this fascination start? How did, how did it become, or what was the catalyst? Well, in terms of, I've been, I've been involved in World War II. It'll be 34 years, ironically, on, on Veterans Day. And so 34 years ago, prior to that, I got a, uh, I was spiritually compelled uh, to go to a place called Bastogne, Belgium. And um, I, I went to Belgium. Uh, Bastogne was the focal point of the World War II Battle of the Bulge, which was the largest battle the U.S. Army had ever fought. And, and there, were, there were thousands and thousands of black men who also fought in that battle. So I go to Bastogne, I go into a museum, and for the first time in my life, I saw African-American soldiers in World War II presented in a museum. And it just kind of blew my mind. And so when I saw mm. them, 
um, I, I started doing all this research about blacks in World War II, and I found that, for example, there were, you know, by the end of the war, there were like 455,000 African Americans in Europe helping fight the war. Um, I did additional research backwards. It took me to Great Britain, and that's why I learned about a lot of the stuff that wound up in Chocolate Soldiers. But while I was doing research in Great Britain, uh, it's where I stumbled upon the black Rosie the Riveters. And, and, you know, this is a result of articles and, and what have you. But, you know, prior to this, when, when I thought about war, I automatically thought about men, not women. And right. so exactly. World, War, World, War II, World, was, World War II was the time that opened up these opportunities in the military and in civilian life for, for all women, but especially for black women. And so yeah. uh, ever, ever since then, like I said, it'll be 34 years in, on, on Veterans Day that I made that, that kind of like pilgrimage to, to Belgium. Let me ask you, how long did it take to create this film and gather all the data you needed? Um, I officially started the documentary in December 2009. And so um, it was just creatively completed in March of this year. And uh, the primary reason it took so long is I didn't have the money. Initially, I started, uh, I did this using my own resources. That was, they were exhausted. I couldn't continue to, to, to fund it the way I wanted to. And so mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it just took 11 years. I, I kept learning and researching, talking, uh, trying to shake the bushes for resources. And I'm a, uh, I'm a spiritual person, I, 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 and, and I believe that, you know, there's ways of connecting with the universe to get things that we want, particularly positive things. And so uh, what was interesting, starting last September from September from mid September to early November, approximately six weeks. Uh, I got money from from five different sources, none of them wow. expected, and that was enough money for me to creatively finish the documentary. So the irony of all this is, is if I had had all the money on the front end, the documentary probably would have been finished about 2011. However, mm-hmm. what I know, what I can say in retrospect, it wasn't the historic moment for it. And uh, the Internet is bigger now than it was then. But we've also had George Floyd and all the other oh, tentacles yeah. that have come off of George Floyd. And so mm-hmm. George Floyd, Me Too movement, all these kind of social uprisings have created the environment for, uh, to tell this story about African-American women, and it was 600,000 of them. That, that, that is one of the... That's a huge... The, can't even, can't yes. even picture that in my mind, you know. And when I was yes. watching the film, some interesting, you know, differences. There was one woman in particular who was adamant that they were still niggers, and no matter what they did or how they did it, they were still niggers. And then there were other women that you interviewed there was one woman in particular, she was talking about the Navy Yard, and she was like, I didn't see any discrimination at all. When you, I'm sure there are things you had to cut out. Is that, is it, was it like half and half, half the women felt they were being discriminated and the other half didn't? What was the ratio on that, dealing with racism and discrimination in the services? 
based upon the women I interviewed, and I think there were seven uh, black women, um, Rosie's, uh, Mrs. Wilson, who's in Philly, I talked to her yesterday. Mrs. Wilson, who's in Philly, uh, to my recollection, is the only uh, black woman, is the only woman in the doc who, who, who talked and said she did not see or experience discrimination to Philadelphia Navy Yard. Now, all the others had Willie May, Mrs. Willie Mago Vaughn, who is in Virginia uh, at the time of the war. She was in Alabama. And so she had the most challenging job. Uh, she was in the most challenging place of all the black women in terms of the racial environment there. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's also worth noting um, because of her complexion, uh, there was this pecking order, you know, this colorism that affected black women so that yes. uh, Mrs. Govan, who's dark, who's dark brown, uh, she worked at uh, E.I. DuPont making gunpowder, very, very dangerous job. And yeah. she could not have gotten, for example, it had been very difficult for her to, for example, to have gotten a job in an office independent of what her skills may have been because of her complexion. Right. Now, one of the things she discussed was that she thinks she was injured um, and had health problems due to constantly working around the unsafe conditions. Um, now, were there other women who talked about um, maybe lingering health effects of things they were working on or just in your research? Did you see that happening um, after, the, after the fact? No, but what I, she was the only one who talked about um, uh, lingering, uh, lingering health issues now Mrs. Alice Amaro, who worked at the Frankfurt Arsenal, she experienced a certain kind of blood poisoning as a result of the job she had. However, mm-hmm. you got to remember in the 1940s, there really were no laws protecting workers, right, uh, like you have period. today. Yeah. Right, right, like you have today. Yeah. So I have to assume that uh, there were probably thousands of women and men who were still in these factories who had or have lingering effects from 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 uh, from the war? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, she's the only one who who talked about it, but I got to assume there were there, there were just a lot more. Now, one of the things the women discussed was that their families, it, some of them, all of them, were felt being patriotic, but they were not accepted in the ranks, and then sometimes they got problems from their communities. For, for wanting to go and, and serve. Why, well, why? No, I was going to say, well, you know, whatever you do, don't, don't confuse, um, you know, black women who are in the military with these black rosies based upon, because uh, there, there were similar experiences, but also different because all were subjected to institutional and often individual acts of racism. Uh, as far as the women I talked to, um, they, none of them talked about any kind of pushback or negative feedback from their family members or from the communities. You got to understand something. Here's what's significant. When we talk about 600,000 black women, uh, the last census in, before the war was in 1940, if you took all, all 600,000 of those black women and put them in one city, they would have been the 13th largest city in America. 
you also have to understand that these women, for a brief moment, and World War II historically was only really a moment, they brought tens of millions of dollars into the black community heretofore had been absent. Because you got to re- also understand that before the war, more than 80% of all black women in America who worked were either domestics or they were sharecroppers. And if you were a sharecropper, primarily in the South, you didn't get paid at all. So, yeah, you know, your, because sharecropping was a 100, was a 100 was a year extension of enslavement. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. One, of your, one of your women was um, a sharecropper, and she was talking about yes. once, you know, her brothers started going away, then she had to learn everything, how to do everything uh, on the farm. Um, yes. now, and, and I think she was also one of the women who during the Depression, she felt that they, I believe, she, she didn't get it hardly impacted. The way she talked about it was like they didn't suffer as much as other people were suffering. Um, I don't know if you got that impression from her, from her comments about the Depression period. Um, when they were talking well, about welfare and relief. Yeah, well, what I would say about her, her, I think her most telling line about the Depression, because she was largely a, a child or, a, a, you know, like, you know, maybe 10 or 11. She was the youngest mm-hmm. woman I interviewed. But her great line was, I was poor, but I didn't know I was poor. So, yep. mm-hmm. you know, off, and, and children often are in that situation. They're playing and doing the things children do, and you're, not, you're oblivious to what your real circumstances are. I mean, she never, uh, they always ate every day. So, you know, there's never a problem with getting food. And, um, you know, the, the conditions under which they live were not the greatest. But, again, she was, you know, a child. And so she didn't really understand until she got older how poor and how challenging and difficult her life was. But all of these yeah. women, I, I think, uh, you know, went through the, all of them went through the Great Depression, and they, and they have stories about, you know, to varying degrees about some types of hardships they experienced. Now, let me ask you, there was a story in there about Western Electric and the white women went on strike. Yes. Uh, can yes. you talk to the audience about why they did that and uh, what happened? Okay. Well, uh, remember, Baltimore is in the South, right? And so Baltimore, uh, while it's only two hours from Philly, it's only 90 miles south of Philly, but it was in the South. And so Jim Crow prevailed in Baltimore. And so there were laws, um, you know, about – uh, having uh, interracial restrooms, I'll say. And they were actually in the plumbing codes. And so uh, Western Electric hired some black women to come into uh, what had previously, previously been an all-white facility, and white women believed these stereotypes that black women carried venereal diseases and all other kinds of diseases. And so when these women, uh, when the black women were brought in, the white women went on strike. And initially, with, with the white women said, we want you to build us separate bathroom facilities. The mm-hmm. uh, Western Electric Management refused. Well, what also happened was uh, there was a lot of racial labor strife all across Baltimore, particularly on the docks, Bethlehem Steel and places like that. So when they went on strike, um, President Roosevelt sent the army into Washington, into Baltimore, 
to maintain order and to keep, uh, you know, production going or, you know, help create an environment where war production could continue. And so after uh, a period of time, uh, the company relented and built separate restrooms and, uh, for black women, and the white women came back to work, thus ending the strike. But you had that kind of mm-hmm. stuff in Philadelphia and Baltimore, all over America, and there were a number of uh, uh, war facilities uh, in various places in, in America where they either didn't hire black women for fear of white women going on strike or there were other cases where white women did go on strike because they refused to work with and or share uh, restroom facilities with black women. What was the experience after the war for the women? Were they able to get employment at other places? How did their lives turn out in general? What do you think? Was it a, was it a positive rest of their life? Was it a down slope? What, what, what was um, your experience in interviewing them uh, and learning about their post-war lives? Yeah, it was a mixed bag, but generally speaking, um, all of the women I interviewed um, did other things after the war, although several of them right after the war uh, went back to domestic service because that's all they could do. Uh, on uh, the, Germany surrendered on May 8, 1945. Uh, millions and millions of women across America were fired within two or three days of Germany's surrender. The Japanese mm. essentially surrendered in August 1944, and the rest of the women were in, in American business corporations were fired. Now, the exceptions to that were women like uh, Mrs. Bertie Bush or Mrs. Uh, Linda Bowman, who worked in the federal government in Washington, D.C. They kept those jobs and had careers, but if you had what I'll call a non-traditional job, if you were building tanks, planes, or airplanes, you know, tanks, planes, or ships, you were fired. And, um, um, and that was whether you were black or white. And so, mm. uh, so ver- all of the women who were in my documentary eventually found uh, jobs that were no longer uh, in, in, in sharecropping or were no longer uh, being domestics in the homes of whites. And uh, some of them, you know, went on to college, uh, had great lives like that. Uh, Mrs. Wilson, who's in Philadelphia, she, uh, she, right after the war, she did go back to domestic service, but shortly thereafter, uh, she managed to get a job uh, in a coat factory. And she worked there for, first she worked in a doctor's office, then she got a job in a coat factory up on North Broad Street. She was there for about 21 years, and then she left wow. there and went to work for tri- for AAA. So generally speaking, the black women who were Rosies, uh, their lives, the war changed their lives. And w- one of the things we, we have to mention is that for the first time in many cases, these women had their own money. And Mrs. Wilson was the only woman of the ones I interviewed who was actually married and who had children. Her husband was overseas in the Army. But one of the things it did for these women was it empowered them to let them and gave them confidence in terms of what they could do. It also gave them money, their own money, for the first time. And in Mrs. Yeah, Wilson, as she said, mm-hmm. yeah, it, yep. it, it, it meant that if you're married and your husband's overseas, 
you had to take care of business. If the roof leaked, you had to take care of that. You had to pay bills. You had to do all the things that perhaps men had traditionally done, but now the women had to do it. And, of course, that's confidence building. It's empowering. And that kind of stuff followed and carried over throughout the rest of their lives. So I would yeah, say as I a think... group, the, the, I was just going to say ahead. as a group, the, the black women uh, did well. And I'd also like to say my late mother uh, was a Rosie. And one of the things we've done in the documentary is I have deliberately and systemically expanded the definition and the understanding of who Rosies were, because it wasn't just uh, women in factories, but it was my women like my mother, who, while she had a traditional job as a clerk typist in the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C., the only reason she had that opportunity was because of the war. Now, we're going to, to the end of the show here, but I want you to talk about real briefly what impact did Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary Bethune have on these women? Well, um, Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune uh, were, were, were great friends. And, and let me also say that Mary, Mary McLeod Bethune, definitely an underrated historical black figure, uh, giant of a woman, giant of a woman. And I often tell people if I had to create my own black Mount Rushmore, she would be one of the four faces on, on my own Mount Rushmore. <laughs> but, but, but Mary McLeod Bethune was instrumental because of her relationship with the first lady. She was instrumental in getting and opening up opportunities for black, for black people generally, for black men and women in the military, uh, she was instrumental in getting the Tuskegee Airmen off the ground. Uh, she was instrumental in uh, sending uh, a battalion of black women to Great Britain and France during the war. So between Mary McLeod Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt, they had the president's ear. And, uh, and, and Mary McLeod Bethune could pick up the phone and, and talk directly to the president. So she is, I would, I would say... She is on par in terms of labor and other opportunities, along with A. Philip Randolph. I would say she's definitely she should be talked about in the same ways we talk about Martin Luther King. Both of those people were giants, and and and, and Mary McLeod Bethune, in my opinion, uh, might have been the, the 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 most significant black woman of the 20th century in terms of now, her impact this- on on black women. When is this coming out, and how can people see the film? Where is it going to be shown? Okay. Uh, It's not ready for release yet. It will be released next year uh, right now. Uh, And I'm still doing some fundraising because the creative part is is completed. However, I'm in the weeds getting uh, licenses and permissions to use some of the images and all that I have. So I'm still doing some fundraising, not as vigorously, but it will be available to be seen and uh, in, in released. Uh, I'm in talks with some distributors, et cetera. However, on December 11th of this year, assuming COVID cooperates, there is going to be a live screening and presentation at the Martin Luther King Library in Washington, D.C. It is going to be sponsored by the Dutch government. Uh, the, the Dutch ambassador will be there, and they will be honoring 
the 600,000 African-American Rosie the Riveters who helped liberate uh, for their contributions in helping liberate the Netherlands from Nazi occupation in World War II, and the black women, the Rosies who are in my documentary, or their daughters, you know, a couple have transitioned, uh, they will be given official uh, citations from the Dutch government acknowledging their contribution. So the next widespread screening wow, that's great. Uh, will be December 11th, 20, uh, 20, 2021 of this year. Now, do and you people have a can contact or, me. Or, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. how can they reach you? People can contact me at invisiblewarriorsfilm at gmail.com. That's invisiblewarriorsfilm at gmail.com, all one word. And I can provide well, additional information. Thank you so much, Gregory Cook, for making this film. And um, I, we also just real quick want to put a plug out there that he is uh, trying to work on, like, curriculum for um, schools. So talk to him about that and send him some money so he can do that and we can get the history uh, records set straight. Thank you for coming on the show today, Gregory. Thank you very much, Joy, for having me. And stay safe, and thank you for helping me spread the word about 600,000 remarkable black women. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with filmmaker Gregory S. Cook about his film Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II. So he's going to be um, having a special screening December 11th uh, in Washington, D.C. The Dutch government is sponsoring it. So um, that sounds really exciting. But uh, hopefully you guys will be able to see it next year for general public. Stay tuned. I'll be speaking with author Marita Golden about her book, The Strong Black Woman. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking. Now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.